Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message, it was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear, please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm hooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 690. I'm your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a story, what a show, what a show. Yes, we have Jeffrey Ford coming on today with his story. Man, not without mercy. Oh, what a story, man. Absolutely chuffed to bits with this. And we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Looking back, genre history. That's all coming to today's show. Do we hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So we'll jump in straight away with Jeffrey Fraud's story, Not Without Mercy. This story is originally appeared in Conjunctions number 67 in the fall of 2016. Jeffrey Ford is the author of the novels The Physiognomy, Memoranda, The Beyond, The Girl in the Glass, The Cosmology of the Wilder World, The Shadow Year, Twilight Prior, Arab's Return, and Out of Body. His short story collections are The Fancy Fantasy Writer's Assistant, The Empire of Ice Cream, The Drowned Life, Crackpot Palace, and Natural History of Hell. What a title that is, man. They don't come around that often there, but that is a cracking title, that. The Best of Jeffrey Ford and... Big Dark Hole. Ford's fiction has appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies from Tor.com to Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction to the Oxford Book of American Short Stories and has been widely translated. It has garnered him a World Fantasy and Edgar Allan Poe, Shirley Jackson, Nebula Awards and a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. He lives in Ohio's farm country in a 2000. In a 2000, in a 120-year-old house and teaches part-time at Ohio Wesleyan University. 
Now, this story is narrated by Bob Hole. Bob Hole is a bon viant, a Hermes, an author, podcaster, blogger, and social media addict. He loves science fiction, fantasy, mysteries, stamp collecting, cactus, and most of the sciences, geek and nerd. He lives in the Serana Desert with his partner. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Not Without Mercy by Jeffrey Ford. The snow angled down fiercely out of the west, filling the parking lot and road and fields beyond. Amy stood at the office window and peered into the storm, trying to spot the headlights of Harry's old truck coming up Saucy Road. She shut off the lamps and signs out by the pumps to see better. Her boss, Farid, had called earlier and told her not to shut down the gas in case someone traveling through the storm might need fuel. Cash. They're out of luck, he'd said. But a debit card? Yes. Travelers in need. He'd laughed, and so had she, but now she was worried. It was a ten-mile drive from the edge of town out to the gas station, and looked to her like there was already eight inches on the ground, no sign of a let-up. Drifts were forming in the road. She took out her cell phone and dialed Harry. Three rings later, he answered. Have you left yet? she asked. I was just thinking I could stay here on the cot and you could come out tomorrow morning and get me. It looks really shitty out there. Too late, said Harry. I'm here. She peered again and now saw the headlights and the silhouette of falling snow they cast. Okay, she said and hung up. Harry pulled into the darkened parking lot. Amy put on her coat and locked the garage and office doors. She left the office light on as a gesture to lonely passers-by. He stayed in the truck and rolled his window down as she approached. How's Saucy? she asked. Bad. We'll have to take it slow and hope we don't get stuck. She walked around to the passenger side of the truck, clasping closed the top of her coat with her right hand. The door of the truck squealed miserably and she shook her head. How old is this rolling pile? Shh, he said, patted the dashboard and then lit the two cigarettes he held between his lips. She got situated in a seat, shut the door, and he handed her one. How are the kids? she asked, and took a long drag, closing her eyes like she was praying. They're in bed, asleep. Your old man is listening for them. Good, she said, and he put the truck in gear and crept out of the parking lot. Amy tapped the pocket of her coat on the left side. Oh, I thought I'd left it in the office. What? He opened the window a slit to flick his ash. Farid's wife, Susan, brought by that necklace this morning that I paid her to make for Becky. It's beautiful. Fake diamonds on a real sapphire. Shit, that's right. Her birthday's next week. She's going to be 14. Ain't that a kick in the head, said Harry, and a deafening roar pounced from above. The truck vibrated and swerved across the road. He did everything he could to keep it from going into the drainage ditch. What the said Amy, and her words were cut off by the appearance from over the truck roof of something on fire, whistling down against the storm. In a moment, it was out of sight behind the trees. Then they heard it hit, felt it, and saw an eruption of sparks shoot up in all directions. Harry managed to keep the truck on the road and swerved around the bend ahead, which brought them closer to the field that had been brimming with soybeans not three months earlier, and now was home to whatever had dropped from the sky. They saw the thing, the size of their garden shed glowing in the distance. 
Harry slowed to a stop. What do we do? he asked. It doesn't look like a plane, said Amy. That's no plane. Is it a meteor? Doesn't look like that either. Well, forget it, she said. I don't want to find out. He pushed down on the gas, the wheels spun, and smoke billowed out of the exhaust pipe, but they sat pretty much where they were. Oh, bullshit, she said. Yeah. He revved the engine and spun the tires a few more times, until finally she said, Okay, that's enough. Is that shovel in the back? Yeah. I'll dig the ice out from under the tires, and maybe we can grab some road. She zipped up her coat, flipped the hood on without securing it, and got out. Harry left the lights on and kept it running. The residual glow from the high beams faintly lit the area around the sides of the truck. He found a flare in the bed, lit it, and set up a few yards behind where they'd stopped. The wind had abated considerably since they'd left the station. Snow still came down, but not quite as furiously. I've got some sand in the back, too, he said. Amy asked him for another cigarette. He lit it in his cupped hands for her. With a butt in the corner of her lips, she went to work, chipping and scraping at the frozen slush. Harry resorted to carrying handfuls of sand and throwing them under the tires. Hey, she said, let me shovel a little first, otherwise I'm shoveling the sand away. She shook her head. Oh, sorry. You're an idiot, she said, and they both laughed. She dug for a while, and he watched. He said, Whatever came down in the storm has gone out. It's just dark there now. If it was a nicer night, we could walk out and see, she said. She handed him the shovel and motioned for him to take a turn. While he went at it, she peered across the field and saw nothing but snow falling, and then eventually disappearing a few yards beyond into black. She thought of that field in summer with the moon shining over it. I've hit road under three tires, Harry eventually called. I'll get some sand with a shovel, throw it on there, and we'll be out of here in a minute. Christ, I'm freezing, said Amy. They both heard a very odd sound coming up from the ditch at the side of the road. Do you hear that, he said. Yeah, what is it? Like burbling, right, she said. They looked down into the ditch, and something was crawling up the side of it. What is that? he said. A possum or a skunk? Nah. The thing pulled itself up the snowy embankment and stood to its full height. No fucking way, he said. I never saw anything like it. A three-foot block of scrapple, said Harry, and three tentacles. He cocked the shovel over his shoulder, wanting to hit the thing back into the ditch, but he was stunned by the sight of it. The creature had a thousand little legs under the bottom side of that bad meat block. Those tiny legs had to scrabble like mad for it to scuttle only half a foot. It had no eyes, just two holes at seemingly random spots on the right side of its front. One was oozing a glistening drool. The hole at the top of the left side of the body, somewhat larger than the two on the other side, poorly hid sharp teeth in a lipless hole. Amy yelled, Get away! He swung with all his might, and the shovel head hit the thing with an echoing slap and thud. The blow sent it sliding down the side of the ditch. Although it sank out of sight, they could hear it still burbling, 
and now sputtering, choking, and giving off a whispered growl like a demon purring. What kind of deal was that? Let's get out of here. They jumped into the truck, and as they shut the doors, it stalled out with a shudder. She turned the key, but there was only a click. Three more times she tried to start it. Don't flood it, he said. Will you shut the fuck up? She tried it again. The battery's brand new. I just had the whole thing checked out. The lights are still on. That thing's got a brain lock on us. He opened the glove compartment and pulled out a Colt pistol. We'll see about this, he said. As Harry was climbing back onto the road, the thing was coming up out of the ditch again. Amy jumped across the console in the middle of the seats to watch from the open passenger door. The thing waved its tentacles at Harry and advanced, albeit slowly. He raised the gun, said, Fuck you, and fired once, twice. Harry and Amy blinked with the noise of each round. The first bullet put a neat hole through the thing, so instead of having two, maybe eye sockets, it now had three. The second shot chipped a rounded corner of Scrapple off the rumbling brick of Alien and brought a reedy scream from the thing. It toppled over at the edge of the incline. Harry advanced gingerly to kick it into the ditch, only 50% sure it was dead. As he inched closer, one of the three tentacles popped up and, quick as a blink, shot a golden seed into his forehead. It happened too fast for Amy to see it. A moment later, one flew out and hit her in the forehead as well. He staggered backward toward the cab of the pickup, and she reached for him from the passenger seat. They both knew the instant the golden seeds entered their heads, breaking a tiny hole in the skull and burying itself in the gray matter, that they were somehow transformed. The universe whirled in his mind's eye, planets and stars and clusters weaving in and out and around, spinning like a top. In her thoughts, the ground leapt up into her through her shoes. As she reached out to touch his shoulder, the two of them turned to a pink dust and blew away. Eight minutes later, the thing was at the side of the truck. It lifted the empty clothes of Amy and Harry and inspected the pockets. In them, among other things, it found a cheap pen, the lighter, a peppermint candy stuck to the lining, a sapphire necklace. It kept the necklace and the lighter. Using its tentacles as hands, it tossed the remainder of the belongings into the cab. It scuttled away through the snow, bullet wounds slowly healing beneath the action of a laving ten-inch-long sky-blue tongue that darted from the lipless hole in front. As it moved and healed, it inserted both the gun and the necklace into another large lipless hole, only this one was in the rear. It shoved two tentacles into the two face holes and moaned low through its back hole. A second later, there was an audible popping noise, and the pickup vanished, snow filling the place it had been. The creature traveled on through the night, drooling, burbling, scuttling. It moved through the storm. It moved across a field, its tracks being slowly covered, and rested in a windbreak of trees. Snow swirled around it, and it was cold. Its bottom half, dragged through every snowdrift on the way, was frigid, but the thousand legs never ceased moving. The tentacles wiggled and swooped through the air like escaped fire hoses, and it sharpened its concentration on the circle of blue within the circle of black that dominated its thoughts. 
In among the towering white oaks, the sun now up and shining in a blue sky on the pure white, the creature found a comfortable spot and fell over, faced first. The wind swept in among the trees and rearranged the snow to cover the gray meat package. A week later it thawed out and then proceeded to lie there beneath the trees, in the weeds, a platform for insects, a curious scent for coyotes. Seasons upon seasons passed. Sun shining, rain falling, snow blowing, leaves turning. Its tentacles eventually rotted off and broke down to the point where field mice could chew them, and they did. Its thousand legs went to sod like so many miniature cigars left out in a downpour. When the temperature climbed, gleaning liquid drizzled out and left a lavender crew-cut moss growing across the ground. The spot was so peaceful and quiet, just the wind passing through the leaves of the old trees and the padding of squirrels along the boughs. In the midst of a very virulent spring, in which the beetles made lace of leaves and yellow flowers grew throughout the thicket, there came without warning a sudden blip of air from the creature's back hole, and a mote of an idea was loosed into the atmosphere. That minuscule pink dot caught the wind and was up and out over the field in a moment. As insignificant as it seemed, it contained multitudes, the information for a command that upon contact with a human's nasal lining would download into the host to be run. The virus replaced DNA with strands of alien spun sugar and initiated through mitochondrial transcendence in the host the conception of a story. The virus instructed the subject to tell a long involved tale in a certain manner, with a certain rhythm, tone, and character. In fact, the host had no choice but to perform the story for a listener the way its programmers intended. To begin listening to it meant one couldn't stop. Those who heard it became infected with it and were able to tell it exactly the same way as the initial host. When that story ran in a mind for seven days, all thoughts became irreparably corrupted and seized like a pickup engine run out of oil. The imagery of the story toppled and jumbled and choked the byways of thought till all became less and less unto nothing. Even the merest notion stalled, withered, and died. Don't worry, this story isn't that story. The reason you know it isn't that story is because in that story, Becky never got her necklace. In this story, she does. And here's how it happened. Becky was in her mid-forties by then, married with three kids, all girls. Five nights after Christmas, she woke up around 2 a.m. to find a strange man standing at the foot of her bed, holding a lit cigarette lighter in one hand and proffering forth a sparkling necklace with the other. She cleared her eyes, believing it a dream, but there he was, a stooped old man with straggly white hair parted in the middle. He was dressed in a threadbare jacket and trousers with cigarette holes in the lap, zipper half open. She was instantly numb with fear. The intruder leaned forward toward her from the bottom of the bed, whispering, We are not without mercy. Take what is yours. The third time he said it, Becky nudged her husband and said, Tim, Tim, there's someone in the room. He pretended to still be asleep, but slowly snaked his arm up the side of the nightstand and slipped his hand into the second drawer from the bottom. 
He got the grip on the gun inside, and once it was firmly in his hand, he lunged upward, spun, and squeezed off five rounds. Three of them hit the old man and sent him sprawling against the closet door. One had taken out his eye, one shattered his chin, and the third was a bull's eye to the Adam's apple. He slumped down into a sitting position, croaked mercy, fell into a dream of the peaceful spot beneath the white oaks in the soybean field where he had found the lighter and necklace the voice in his head demanded he retrieve. He fell into the lavender fuzz that spreads across the ground and passed through to the next world. The police reported the break-in at Becky and Tim's place as a burglary. A week after the medics had come and carted the old man's body away, a police officer who had arrived that night to answer the 911 call Tim had made as the gun smoke cleared showed up at the front door. He had the necklace and lighter and was returning them, assuming they had been stolen by the intruder that night. Becky liked the looks of the necklace, so she went along with his scenario and figured she might as well get something out of the horrible incident. Tim wasn't home, which was good, because she was sure if she tried to lie to the officer in his presence, he'd have corrected her that the items weren't theirs. Before he left, the officer told her something about the perpetrator, as he called the burglar. The old guy just basically disintegrated over a period of a few days. I mean, a body usually sticks around till they can find relatives and bury it. But not this burp. He came apart like overcooked salmon, just rotted away in the morgue drawer. Guys down there told me they'd never seen anything like it. Said he stank to high heaven. Right, said Becky, not really wanting to listen to descriptions of the demise of the horrible old pervert. The officer had more to say, but she wiggled her fingers at him in a casual goodbye and shut the front door before he could go on. That afternoon, she wore the necklace without the slightest idea that it had been made specifically for her years earlier. While she sat drinking a cup of coffee, staring through the sliding glass door to the backyard, she noticed the sapphire pendant of the thing had begun to glow a deep space indigo. She was astonished when a blue beam shot out of the precious stone and projected a moving image on the glass door. If she could have, she'd have gotten up and run. She'd have ripped the necklace off. She'd have screamed, although the house was empty. As it was, though, she was paralyzed. All she could do was watch. The scene through which she could see the white oak and the garden and shed was of a kindly-looking old man with white hair and a white walrus mustache. He wore cocky pants, sandals, and a v-neck sweater, powder green with a short-sleeved white shirt under it, and he could have been the nicer brother of the man who'd broken into the house. He sat under a tree projected upon the glass just about where the real tree could be seen through it. Greetings, said the old man and smiled. Call me Uncle Gribnob. I'm appearing to you in a familiar form so as not to frighten you. I'm here to offer a sort of explanation as to why your planet is being invaded and your species is being wiped out. We're not without mercy. We thought you deserved an explanation. Just keep your peace for a few minutes while I explain, and then feel free to ask questions. I'll answer anything you like. Do you understand? You may nod if you do. Becky nodded. Okay, said the old man. Here's the long and short of it. We take no pleasure in wiping your kind out. It's not usually our way. 
We're doing this for the greater good of the universe. Somebody has to do it, and since we're the most culturally and morally advanced and have the most cutting-edge technology, we've taken it upon ourselves to do the deed. Believe me, it's not without the consent, no, approval, of the other civilizations. Even the reptile people were unanimously for it. You see, we've all had to deal with your kind before. And what I mean by your kind is, you have a distinctive aberration in your minds that can't be healed or manipulated or fixed. And that one small mistake, that single knot in the works, so to speak, makes your species so dangerous. We've seen the results. You're not sophisticated enough yet to be a problem to the universe at large, but who wants to let things get to that point? Your defective brains persist in insisting, even though a faulty mathematics that makes your error magically vanish, that the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter is an endless number. You no doubt heard of pi in school. The ratio, in reality, is simply three. But your lack of sense dares to claim it is a number with endless decimal places. It would be funny if it weren't for what we know peoples who have this deviant psychostructure are capable of. How can anything be endless in a limited universe? Dangerously delusional. So we're going to ease you out of existence. Questions? Becky could barely follow what had been said. She thought she was having a stroke or that Tim had dropped a hit of acid into her coffee before he left for work. All she managed to get out was, What can I do? Well, said Uncle Gribnob, his image wavered in and out. Finally, he vanished from the glass, and she could see clearly into the backyard where the wind was blowing end-of-summer leaves. The necklace continued to glow, and his voice continued to sound in her head. You can do me a favor and listen to this story. She did, and that night at dinner she told it to Tim and the kids. Becky noticed her younger daughter's eyes shone with pleasure at the descriptions of gunplay. A few days later, the whole family shut down within a few hours of each other, and a few days after that, the alien squadron drifted in for a landing at the Home Depot parking lot. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And there you go. Big th- oh, Jeff. Lovely to have you back on the show. So it's like old friends getting together again. Jeff, thank you so much for that. And Bob, what a voice, lad. Excellent. Thank you indeed. Yes, you know what I know what it is now. It is our very own Amy Hurt Sturgis. Ames. Hello, my friends. It's time to take another look back into genre history. And today I want to recommend a fantastic book, a real tour de force. And it's one of my favorite kinds of books in that it is a book that leads the reader to lots and lots of other books. That is a win-win. I am talking about Out of This World, Speculative Fiction in Translation, From the Cold War to the New Millennium, by Rachel S. Cordasco. And if that name is familiar to you, you may know Rachel from her wonderful website, SF in Translation. Back to the book. This was published by the University of Illinois Press in 2021. And let me start by just giving you the official description of the book. Quote, The 21st century has witnessed an explosion of speculative fiction in translation. Rachel S. Cordasco examines speculative fiction published in English translation since 1960, ranging from Soviet-era fiction to the Arabic-language dystopias that emerged following the Iraq War. Individual chapters on speculative fiction and translation from Japanese, French, and 12 other source languages feature an introduction by an expert in the language's speculative fiction tradition and its present-day output. Cordasco then breaks down each chapter by subgenre, including science fiction, fantasy, and horror, to guide readers toward the kinds of works that most interest them. Her discussion of available speculative fiction and translation stands alongside an analysis of how various subgenres emerged and developed in different source languages, and why some subgenres have been more likely to be translated into English. An informative and one-of-a-kind guide, Out of This World offers readers and scholars alike a tour of speculative fiction's new globalized era." End quote. Well, that already hits some of the high points. This is like a world tour of speculative fiction and translation. And it's all the more useful because it isn't trying to do everything. There are some very thoughtful and well-informed boundaries on this project. For example, it starts with works translated in 1960 to the present because the 1960s saw an explosion of translation into English for works that were originally published in other languages. Also, this volume is limited to 14 source languages of works that were then translated into English because these 14 languages have produced a kind of critical mass of works, roughly 10 or more works of speculative fiction that have been translated into English, of works that are mainstream, and by mainstream I mean adult level, and that are novels, collections, and anthologies of speculative fiction. And that allows each section for each of these languages 
to show sort of the depth and breadth of the works, the conversations held within these speculative fiction genres, to be able to talk about these works as a body of literature, if you will. In other words, there's enough works translated to show a representation, a wide representation. The languages that are covered for works translated into English include Arabic, Chinese, Czech, Finnish, French, German, Hebrew, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Polish, Russian, Spanish, and Swedish. The way each section is organized means that while this would be a fascinating book to read cover to cover, it's also extremely useful as a resource one can dip in and out of and do some targeted research with. So, for example, let me use the Italian language science fiction in translation section as an illustration. First, there is an introduction, uh, in this case by Francesco Verso, talking about Italy and Italy's long-term relationship with speculative fiction, going all the way back to the Renaissance and the way that Italian writers have speculated about utopian or dystopian scenarios and how we can see some of very early speculative fiction in its embryonic form there through Italian literature. And then going all the way to what Verso identifies as a new golden age of Italian science fiction that really isn't getting the international attention it deserves because there hasn't been the call for translation to get these works out to an international audience. And hopefully this will you know, change that <laughs> so that there will be more demand for these works. But a, a thoughtful and well-informed introduction there. And then there's a section on the texts themselves. And Cordasco breaks the Italian speculative fiction in translation down into several subgenres: literary fantasy and gothic and modern horror and modern high fantasy and science fiction. Each of those gets its own mini-essay discussing the evolution of the subgenre and how the works have found international readers. Then there is a list, a chronological list of primary sources and when these translations happened and how to access them, full publication information there, which is lovely. And it ends with a bibliography of secondary sources. If you're interested in reading about Italian language, speculative fiction and translation, there are some great resources here, reviews and scholarly articles and all kinds of good works here, including books on the evolution of Italian speculative fiction. So that is just a snapshot of one section, but I think you can see how useful that would be to be able to dip in and get the information you want very easily accessible there because of the organization of this volume. So there is a lot here for people who are interested in genre fiction, from chronological lists of when different languages' works made it to English translation, to thoughtful analyses of 
how and why genres evolved in different ways in different languages, in different cultures, with different historical contexts, to just great, great recommendations. If you want to read more, you will find recommendation lists here that will make you very happy. So if you are interested in science fiction, fantasy, horror, magical realism, weird fiction, all from around the world accessible to an English reader, check out Out of This World, Speculative Fiction in Translation from the Cold War to the New Millennium by Rachel S. Cordasco. I would also recommend checking out her website, sfintranslation.com. And I hope that this will also encourage more people to be working on making accessible and available and welcoming the reading of international science fiction in translation. And I want to end with one more recommendation, a related recommendation, and that is for a new anthology, also published 2021. It is called The Best of World SF Volume 1, edited by Lavi Tidar, and that is published by Head of Zeus. It is an Ad Astra book. This is a doorstop of a work, and it's a wonderful global tour of science fiction today from a variety of different places. Some of these stories were written in English, others have been translated into English. The authors represent 23 different countries, seven different languages, and here is the official description. Quote, 26 new short stories representing the state of the art in international science fiction. The future is coming. It knows no bounds and neither should science fiction. They say the more things change, the more they stay the same. But over the last hundred years, science fiction has changed. Vibrant new generations of writers have sprung up across the globe, proving the old adage false. From Ghana to India, from Mexico to France, from Singapore to Cuba, they draw on their unique backgrounds and culture, changing the face of the genre one story at a time. End quote. So this anthology of 26 short stories is a great place to see the genre right now from a global perspective, its depth and its breadth. And I think looking at these contemporary stories is also a nice contrast with considering speculative fiction in translation going back to 1960, forward through to the present. Also, world science fiction is a real passion for Lavi Tadar, who is himself a, a, an accomplished science fiction author. You may also know him as the editor of three of the five volumes of the Apex Book of World SF, published by Apex Publications, really a fantastic set. So while I'm on a roll here talking about world science fiction and, and world speculative fiction and translation, let me also recommend the Apex Book of World SF Volumes 1 through 5. He was not only the editor of three of these five volumes, but he is the series editor as well. 
Those were published across a nine-year spread from 2009 to 2018. So, all of this is to say it is an exciting time for world science fiction, and it's an exciting time for people interested in speculative fiction in translation. People who are in Anglophone countries, or are themselves Anglophone, who are interested in, as Rachel Cordasco says, moving beyond or outside of their literary comfort zones to learn about how the non-Anglophone world thinks and writes about, as she calls it, future technology, the supernatural, the uncanny, the horrifying, and the impossible. And so I would like to end this recommendation of the resource Out of This World, Speculative Fiction in Translation from the Cold War to the New Millennium, with the quote with which Rachel Cordasco opens the book. Quote, A casual observer should expect science fiction to be more international than other kinds of popular fiction, precisely as a result of this stress on change. For isn't it reasonable to assume that the hopes, fears, and expectations of people will be different in different countries, their ways of looking at things unlike those in one's own country? That is from Franz Rottensteiner from View from Another Shore, European Science Fiction, from 1999. I hope these recommendations are of interest to you. Again, I do love a book that points me to other books, and this one certainly does. I hope these suggestions are useful to you, and I look forward to joining you again very soon with something completely different when we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. Oh, always a pleasure, Amy. Always a pleasure. Big hugs you. Oh, nice to have you back on, lass. Thank you so much indeed, Amy. It's, a, it's, it's an honour and a pleasure to keep having you on here. That is it then. That is Starship Sova's 690 put to bed listen don't forget if you want to pop over to patreon i don't often ask much but you know what i mean it's kind of time to start rattling the can again if you would be so kind and a little bit of cop as each month just help starships over keep going that would be fantastic until next week just like to say good night from me thank you
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.